Jubilees is written about 105 BCE. It's a retelling of the Bible. It begins with creation and works its way through rewriting the Bible in a particular way. And what's interesting about Jubilees is it knows the same traditions that First Enoch knows about these fallen angels. It seems to know First Enoch specifically, this actual writing that you've read. And it does a different thing with it on some issues, including this issue. It expands the explanation of why evil spirits continue to do work in the world. How would it be that God would allow it? Well, or better put is, obviously God allows it, because in the apocalyptic thinker's mind, everything is part of God's plan. But it tries to at least explain and sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Mitigate the effect of God having allowed this to happen. So let me get Jubilees out here and walk you through a few things about it. So the author of Jubilees, writing about 100 years or so after the author of First Enoch, knows First Enoch and knows other traditions about the stories of fallen angels and puts them in different ways throughout his whole narrative, retelling the whole history of Israel, and does it in a new way that has this story of the fallen angels in the background. The name that the author of Jubilees uses is called Mastema. The word Mastema itself means enmity. Mastema, for the author of Jubilees, is the head evil spirit that continues to make evil on earth and continues to harass humanity and to cause sin among humanity. And so throughout his retelling of the story of the Hebrew Bible, he has Mastema raising his head at various points. And then at crucial points, he actually retells the story of the fallen angels at the Genesis 6 position. And then retells another story later on that we're going to get to about fallen angels uh, to try and work around some of the problems that he sees and how First Enoch works with it. Does anyone know the narrative of Isaac being sacrificed? When the author of Jubilees retells that story, it's Mastema that comes and evilly tells Abraham to kill his own son. Chapter 17 to 18 of Jubilees is where you have that. So what the author of Jubilees consistently does in retelling the story, he has the story of fallen angels in his mind already, and he consistently retells the story in a way that takes evil away from God. In other words, he feels, I'm not saying what I think is evil, I'm talking about the author of Jubilees seeing a problem with that. That author feeling that that's a problem, and then finding a workaround. And the consistent workaround he has is passages where it seems like God is doing something evil, to the author of Jubilees it seems evil, is to have Mastema be the figure who has done it. Later on, the figure of Mastema is explained to you as you read through Jubilees, and you find out he's the head evil spirit, as we've already referred to, among those offspring of the giants. Let me highlight a couple of important things then, now that you've got that background. Pre-flood. Positioning the story of the fallen angels the same place that first Enoch does and actually referring to books of Enoch in the process of talking about it And when the children of men began to multiply in the surface of the earth and daughters were born to them And that the angels of the Lord saw in a certain year of that jubilee that they were good to look at So they're checking out the humans They come down and mate with them and giants are born from them 
And injustice increased upon the earth, and all flesh corrupted its way. And injustice grew upon the earth, and every imagination of the thoughts of all mankind was thus continually evil. Similar to how First Enoch is developing the Genesis material. Then you have the sending of the flood, and the binding of the angels who have done this, and sending out the sword against all the offspring. Then those are the spirits in Jubilees uh, that become the evil spirits, the head of which is Mastema. Okay? So, so far, very similar to First Enoch's expansion. In fact, he's dependent on First Enoch in the way he deals that with, but he deals with it differently. He comes again to the post-flood world and explains in, in First Enoch, why would it be that evil is introduced from angels, God gets pissed off at humanity, says, wipe all out their evil now. And yet in First Enoch, there's still this whole thing that evil still exists. There's a bit of a problem with the way that First Enoch deals with it, at least in the view of Jubilees, and he has a different way of dealing with it. After that, in the third week that the, at that Jubilee, the polluted demons began to lead astray the children of Noah's sons. So it explains how evil started to be rampant again after the flood. Even Noah's family, when they showed back up, were tormented by these demons, and it actually explains that evil starts to uh, become prominent. Noah's praying here. Do not let the evil spirits rule over my kids, lest they destroy them from the earth. But bless me and my sons, and let us grow and increase and fill the earth. And you know that which your watchers, the fathers of these spirits, did in my days, and also these spirits who are alive. Shut them up and take them to the place of judgment. Take them away. Don't let us be tormented by these evil spirits. And do not let them cause corruption among the sons of your servant, O oh my God, because they are cruel and were created to destroy. And let them not rule over the spirits of the living, because you alone know their judgment. And do not let them have power over the children of the righteous henceforth and forever. This next passage is crucial. It's the union of Satan and Mastema. And the Lord our God spoke to us so that we might bind all of them. And the chief of the spirits, Mastema, came and he said, So Mastema appears before God. O Lord, creator, leave some of them before me, and let them obey my voice, and let them do everything which I tell them. Because if some of them are not left for me, I will not be able to exercise the authority of my will among the children of men, because they are intended to corrupt and lead astray before my judgment, because of the evil sons of men is great. And he said, let a tenth of them remain before him, but let nine tenths, uh, nine parts, go down into the place of judgment. So Noah prays, look at God, these evil spirits are still around. We were the only righteous family. You've wiped out everyone, and now already the evil spirits you've allowed to exist are causing my family problems again. Could you get rid of them, please? Mastema, the head of the evil spirits, presents himself before God and says, all right, I hear this whole idea that Noah wants to get rid of the evil spirits, and, I, and you're probably inclined to that, but what will I do? God says, you can have one-tenth of the evil spirits. The nine-tenths go to be with Azazel and Samyaz in that pit for the preparing for judgment. It doesn't really solve the dilemma that you were noticing, but it struggles with it in a different way. It says, well, God let it happen, but he didn't let it happen on a full scale. Then we come to this. And he told one of us to teach Noah all of their healing 
because he knew that they would not walk uprightly and would not strive righteously. So he gets strategies and to sort of deal with the evil. And we acted in accord with all his words. All of the evil ones who were cruel, we bound in place of judgment. An angel, good angel speaking here, right? But a tenth of them we let remain so that they might be subject to Satan upon the earth. And the healing of all their illnesses, together with their seductions, we told Noah, so that he might heal by means of herbs of the earth. And Noah wrote everything in a book, just as we taught him according to every kind of healing. And the evil spirits were restrained from following the sons of Noah. So with two strategies. One, take away nine-tenths of the evil spirits. They have, leave a tenth, which ain't so great, but have some sort of strategies for Noah and his family to fight against the evil, including evil being natural evil, right? Remember that just about everyone in history before the modern world assumes that illness is evil. Assume that even is caused, at least in Western Judean sort of context and, and Christian context, right? Western world. But look at that. This is the very first chronological connection between the adversary figure, Satan, that we have throughout the Hebrew Bible, but not as an evil opposed to God. The very first chronological, around 105 BCE, Satan being identified with the head of the evil spirits, at least, who are offspring of the fallen angels. Not identifying with Mazazel, because Azazel's bound in the pit, according to Jubilees and to First Enoch, right? But Mastema is Satan for this author. And so every occurrence of Satan, or at least quite a few of the occurrences of Hasatan, the adversary, the obstacle, when they occur in the Hebrew Bible, are interpreted as references to Mastema by the author of Jubilees. In the same way that he sort of found workarounds for when God was seemingly doing evil through an angel, he also found references to Hasatan and took that to mean Mastema. It's an important connection because that connection was necessary for the subsequent history of Satan, for, for me to be able to title the course The History of Satan. Hasatan, the adversary of the Hebrew Bible, had to be joined with this with these evil beings who are opposed to God, these evil angelic or, in this case, demonic beings. The latter thing I was just talking about is in chapter 10 of Jubilees, and you can find Jubilees online. It's part of the pseudepigrapha, as is First Enoch. So let's continue on chronologically. That's what we've been doing, eh? Is we're chronologically building up what we can see we only catch momentary glimpses, and on top of that, I'm being selective. There were other writings from this time that you could have read, but I've really picked the, the most important ones for understanding the development and for understanding when we first see a Judean author thinking this, that, or the other about the fallen angels. And so we're seeing the story building up gradually, aren't we? So we were at 105 BCE, most likely, with the Jubilees. Now we can move on to talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls a little bit. Um, let's skip the Daniel stuff for a second in case we run out of time. I'll come back to it. Um, it one thing to mention, though, about the book of Daniel is an apocalyptic writing, but no reference to fallen angels occurs in it. No reference to Satan. But there is a personified evil figure, and it's the king, an actual king, Hellenistic king, that is the evil figure that the archangel Michael fights in the book of Daniel. So there's that battle imagery, there's the evil force versus God force, and there's the archangel helping fight. There's a lot of the similar sort of scenario of what we saw earlier, uh, but no Satan mentioned, no fallen angels mentioned at all in the book of Daniel. 
Let's look at Belial now. Or Belial is an alternative spelling of that. Worthless one is a, a name that we find in later on when Paul writes about evil personified. He sometimes uses the word Belial, worthless one, to describe the evil uh, will opposed to God. Um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's the favorite term, though not the only term, for a pers uh, personified evil figure opposed to God. And so you read a certain passage of the Dead Sea Scrolls that makes no mention of Belial, but I need to give you some context so you see how this relates to the broader document you read. The little segment you had is taken from a literal rule that the community on the Dead sea, of the Dead Sea sect used. There were some Judean priests in the temple who were beginning to have problems with the way other Judean priests in the, in the Jerusalem temple were running things. And a movement started to emerge around a figure that came to be called the, the teacher of righteousness. He lived probably around the 160s and 150s BCE. Certain priests felt that other priests weren't running things properly and felt that people weren't being repentant enough, that people weren't admitting their sin enough within Judea, and weren't realizing they weren't following the covenant of God, the Torah, the law of God enough, and that things had to be followed more strictly. And so this sort of movement emerging around the teacher of righteousness, who was a priest in the temple, gradually got to the point where they were having antagonistic relationship with other Judeans, including priests in the temple and got to the point where they said, we're getting the head of here, we're going out into the desert to live on our own, away from the evil that is now infiltrating God's people, including God's temple. And so this is known now as the Dead Sea sect or the Dead Sea movement. To them, living a holy life is living according to the Torah, to the T, and really focusing on how to live your life in accordance with God's covenant. They even started to talk as though that God had a new covenant that was especially for them, for their group, and that they were the true remnant of Israel that God was making a new covenant with. By that, they didn't mean that God was throwing out the old covenant. They just meant that this new covenant was an intensification of the covenant God had with his people, and now he's intensifying it with the remnant, the true righteous people they began to formulate a rule about how you live in this community out on the Dead Sea. How do we live according to the New Covenant? How do we live an extra righteous life that goes beyond most other Judeans? And this little passage you have is from the community rule. But let me point out to you how the community rule begins. Because Bellier plays a fundamental role in the worldview of the authors of this document. And remember that this document is used as the community guide and guidebook. So Bellier, the worthless one, is very important to the mindset of this community. It begins with the yearly covenant ceremony they have. This group developed a yearly ceremony where they re-emphasized their belonging to the new covenant that God was establishing with them. And they actually had a ritual, yearly ritual, where they renewed the new covenant that God had made with them. The covenant of kindness, as they call it. And in the midst of this, they get into the sons of light, sons of darkness stuff that you read about later on in the passage. God made a covenant of kindness. All those who freely volunteer to carry out God's decrees are part of that covenant, so as to be united in the counsel of God and walk in perfection in his sight. 
complying with all revealed things concerning the regulated times and their stipulations, in order to love all the sons of light, each one according to his lot and God's plan, and to detest all the sons of darkness. We already have a quick sketch of who the sons of darkness are, right? From what we've, uh, what I just said. Each one in accordance with his plan. Already at the very beginning, this is at the beginning of the whole document, the rule begins by saying there are sons of light and there are sons of darkness, and we, part of the new covenant, are the sons of light. Where does Belial come out here, in the, even in this first column? So they're describing the ritual they're going to have that renews the covenant, but in the midst of discussing that, something important pops up there, that they have this notion of, we are living in the dominion of Belial. These are apocalyptic thinkers. We're living in an evil age dominated by evil powers, is the way I've expressed it other times, right? Here they have a personified evil figure, Belial. We are now living in the reign or the time or the dominion of Belial, the worthless one. Paul also uses the word. Over and over again in these first columns, you have that further down. The dominion of Belial is referred to again. Then you have this whole categorization of humanity into two camps, that dualism that we've talked about. So there's the dualism of Belial dominion versus God's dominion. And then people being on one side or the other is what you get in column two, isn't it? So this is describing the ceremony. The priests will do this. The Levites will do that. These are group all belonging to the Dead Sea sect. And they say certain things. And so the priests will bless all the men of God's lot who walk in unblemished. So the righteous get described there for you in column two in the first few lines. Then it comes to the lot of Belial. Two camps again, right? The lot of God and the lot of Belial. And the Levites shall curse all the men of the lot of Belial in lines four and five there. They shall begin to speak and shall say, Accursed are you for all your wicked, blameworthy deeds. May he, God, hand you over to dread into the hands of all those carrying out acts of vengeance, accursed without mercy for the darkness of your deeds and sentenced to the gloom of everlasting fire. So this group has the idea of the wicked, those who are on the side of the worthless one, Belier, equivalent of Satan, but they don't use that term here, are, have a destiny of everlasting fire, don't they? What do, there's a destiny for each of these groups. The destiny of God's law is eternal peace. So dividing humanity into two camps as part of this battle between God and his ultimate adversary, the worthless one, this evil figure. The document never explains who Belial is. It just takes for granted that all the members of this group already have that as their way of describing an evil figure that opposed to God. We just don't know the full story of where they came up with that. We do know that the Dead Sea sect had copies of First Enoch. Among the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found were copies of the portion of First Enoch you read. But this is around 100 BCE, approximately, or slightly after that, uh, that we're seeing reflected here in this particular writing. Look especially now, and let's analyze the end of column three and end of column four. This is, in a way, a summary of how the community also inherits an idea and develops it in a certain way. What is this two spirits thing? Explain it to me as you saw it, in it when you were reading here, and did it ring a bell when you are reading the idea of two spirits? What are the two spirits? How is this explained? Where do they come from for this author of the community rule? Ahura Mazda and Nangramanyu. Especially in that hymn. 
that we read that is from Zoroastrian literature, but even hinted at in the Plutarch material. In that hymn, it's about the whole summary of the Zoroastrian worldview is that there are two spirits at, a, at war with one another. And so this two spirits tradition that it gets preserved and developed in the Dead Sea sect here sounds a lot like that Zoroastrian material. It's hard to know exactly the relationship between them besides that there there's probably is some relationship culturally. So we have two spirits. Who are they in the Dead Sea sect? So they're angelic beings, sometimes talk, called princes, sometimes called angels. This idea of using the prince language for angels is very common in Judean literature. For example, if you want to look at another example, that look at the book of Daniel in the Apocalypse section, the last part of it, where it talks about my prince in reference to the archangel Michael. So God says, my prince will set up the final kingdom in, in, the, in the Daniel's visions. Remember that later on, the prince of darkness becomes terminology for Satan. So we're here seeing where, where that comes from in its uh, earlier stages. It doesn't come directly from this. It's not that the people who use that term for Satan later on had the Dead Sea Scrolls, but we're seeing the cultural origins that came to play a role of it. So what about humanity in relationship to these spirits? What is, how do they relate to humanity? There's a tension here between what we as moderns, when we're talking about this, call free will and predestination or predeterminism. They're sort of walking a line back and forth on that, and aren't always explaining how they really think about it. You're either on the side of the angel of light or the side of the angel of darkness. There's no other choice. There's the twoism, the dualism. Uh, humanity takes sides in this struggle. Did you say that God created these spirits? This is something important to notice, isn't it? This is somewhat different than the fallen angel story in First Enoch. Even though they also have First Enoch and may know that, and I don't know whether they ever try and reconcile it. But they have here God creating the light and the darkness, this prince of light and the prince of darkness. So if God here creates good and evil, it sort of makes God all-powerful. But then it gives the problem of God creating evil, right, for some ancient authors. So the fallen angels does a better job of trying to get God more distance from evil. Yeah. Here, though, it doesn't sound like the fallen angel material from First Enoch, even though they have that and use that document here on the at the Dead Sea sect. So there's different ways in which evil is expressed and evil personified is understood in different Judean authors. There's no one answer as to what all Judeans think. But the variety of thoughts that are forming in this period become the fodder for the development of Satan that we're getting into throughout the course. Page seven, where you basically have an explanation that there are these two spirits guiding humanity and humanity making a decision to be in one camp or the other, and then the destiny of these camps. That God is going to intervene. He uses the word, the author does, visitation. The visitation of God is that final cataclysmic intervention. On the last day is the language that's talked about. That God has determined an end to evil. This predetermined plan that's characteristic of the apocalyptic worldview. He's going to visit and obliterate evil forever. You get to that halfway down the page. There's going to be judgment and purification. And there's going to be a, a perfect new creation for the righteous. And let's look at what the evil guys get uh, just before we leave here. Look at lines 12 and following, further up on the page. And the visitation of those who walk in the spirit of deceit. 
on the bad side, will be for a glut of punishments at the hands of all the angels of destruction, for eternal damnation, for the scorching wrath of the God of revenge, for permanent error and shame without end, with the humiliation of destruction by the fire of the dark regions. They can't make up their mind whether it's eternal torture or obliteration, and they keep alternating between them. But the point is pretty clear. You don't want to be in this camp. They're not too worried about the inconsistencies of they get obliterated or get tortured forever. They're saying, don't be a son of darkness. Be a son of light and become part of the perfect new creation that God makes. So we'll continue on this later, but at least we're getting up to uh, the time of when Christianity starts to emerge, the Jesus movements. And we'll get into that next time.